Well, good morning and welcome to part four of this series called Jesus Hates. And if that's a provocative and strong series title, that's the point. Romans 12 gives us the words, it's a biblical command that Christians ought to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And so that's what we're trying to do throughout this series by seeing and identifying those areas that separate us from God. And we said in part one, Jesus hates injustice. He hates empty religion and pride. And today we get into how Jesus hates hypocrisy. But first, as we kind of get into this, I want to give a shout out to these square cards that we have. On the back, there's this Grow Deeper section. What we're doing uh, as a church is every series, we have like this special focus area of how uh, we're growing deeper. So last month, it was about reading uh, the book of Acts together as a church community. This Grow Deeper special focus is simply praying for God to identify one area of your life. Maybe it's a belief that you hold or a behavior that you're participating participating in some area of your life that's maybe out of line with what God would want from you. And what we're doing is just simply praying and say, God, what is it? What do you see, God, that maybe I don't see? And we're praying that with an expectation that he's going to answer you, he's going to start to convict you, and you're going to start to sense this urge to change, to kind of bring our lives, our beliefs, our behavior a little more in line with his. If he's doing that, if God's on the move in your life, we'd love to hear about it. Honestly, you can fill out one of those cards in the seat back in front of you, drop it in the bucket and between the doors on the way out. Otherwise, just email me, email the church office, anybody really, and just get that story out and saying, hey, I don't know where this is going, but God is convicting me in this way, in this part of my life, a belief that I hold about him, about me, about this world. Maybe it's a behavior thing that I'm participating in. We would love to celebrate the conviction of God, the movement of God in your life because it's a good story if it's from God. All right, so we're in this series, uh, Jesus Hates, and we're talking about hypocrisy today. And I just kind of want to frame today's theme, today's message with a quick story about a zoo because why not? Um, this zoo is very well known. It's a zoo. It's got well known for all kinds of different animals in the exhibits. A uh, huge variety of creatures in the enclosures. And uh, one time, unexpectedly, in the middle of the night, the centerpiece of their zoo, this gorilla that they've had for years, dies unexpectedly. And so they want to make sure not to lose face in front of the public and the, the ticket admission paying public. And so instead of just being open and honest about it, they go ahead and they pay someone to dress up in a gorilla costume to walk around the enclosure and pretend like he's a gorilla. And so this guy gets, puts the suit on, you know, first day on the job, and he's walking around trying to figure out how to act like a gorilla. And he goes up on the wall and he actually falls over, falls off the enclosure, out of the gorilla enclosure and into, into the lion enclosure. And he thinks like, no, this is it, game over. I didn't sign up for this. So he breaks character, he starts yelling, he's panicking, he's shouting for help as the lion approaches and says to him, quiet down, you're gonna get us both fired. <laughs> of course, of course a story like that, that didn't happen, I don't think. <laughs> But today we're kind of acknowledging about how sometimes it kind of does happen. Because it kind of does happen in the church when we come here and we expect one thing. And we come here and we're praying and worshiping 
and, and trying to pattern our lives after Jesus. And so we pray and we worship about love and about grace and about compassion and about all these other things. And then when we leave this world, it's like this whole nother representation. They look at us as the church and they say, no, 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 that's not it at all. It was just, it's just fake creatures, fake zoo exhibits the entire time. It's not real. It's just make-believe. It's just pretend. And I think it wouldn't be a stretch to say that the problem with the world has with Christianity at its core, could possibly be Christians. Um, one person, Brendan Manning, he wrote about this thing, and I just love the way he put it. He said that the greatest cause of atheism in the world today is people who honor God with their mouths, but their lifestyle doesn't represent it at all. He said that's simply what an unbel- this is so powerful, what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable. And it's like, oh, it just it cuts right to the core because I think at our, at our core, we know there's a lot of truth to that, that the, that the problem that the unbelieving world has with Christians is simply the fact that we don't follow through all the time on the things that we say in the lives that we know that we're supposed to live. And so we're going to address that this morning by taking a look at this place that Jesus addressed that. And we're going to take it even a step farther and say, not just acknowledging that we're hypocrites, but actually trying to find a way, trying to unlock this key or this secret uh, to no longer live this hypocritical kind of life. And so we're going to to go to the book of Luke chapter 6. You can follow along in the Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. The words are going to be on the screen behind me. Some of these words are going to sound familiar to you, if you especially if you grew up in church. And, and you might think of this as the Sermon on the Mount. This is not the Sermon on the Mount. That was from the book of the Gospel of Matthew, told that story, the time he heard Jesus uh, preach from a mountainside. It's very, very similar because Jesus, honestly, uh, recycled his material and preached the same thing more than once. Shocking, I know. He just wanted people to hear it. As a preacher myself, I can kind of appreciate that. Uh, this time in the book of Luke, in the book of Luke, it's not a uh, it's not a sermon on the mount because this time Jesus preaches that he's on a plane, it's a flat area, and people back then were about as creative as Christians today, and are like, what's it called? Well, he's on a mountain. Sermon on the Mount, great title. Uh, this is Sermon on the Plain from the Gospel, the Jesus story according to Luke, and he starts off this way, and he says from Luke six verse forty six, and he says, why do you call me Lord Lord and do not do what I say so much in just like the initial statement. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? There's a repetition there of the word Lord. And Jesus is just drawing attention to the fact that some people drew attention to themselves. Uh, Lord, Lord is a repeated line as a way of saying, no, no, I'm not just in Jesus as Lord. I'm way in Lord, Lord. They're enthusiastic about how much they're following after Jesus. Lord, Lord. And Jesus is going, yeah, you're all talk and no show. Like you're saying, Lord, Lord, but like why you don't do what I say. And that's why this message comes out in this conversation we're having about being a hypocrite. But I just got to clarify something this morning. I got to clarify because it's going to be really helpful later on what a hypocrite is. But even just as importantly, what a hypocrite is not. What spiritual hypocrisy is not. You see, sometimes we, we, we go through life in our spiritual lives as well, and we think that being a hypocrite is, is wanting to do something, wish we did something, and then not following through on that. And that's just not what hypocrisy is, but we kind of conflate the two things. It's really important to draw this distinction. So if you find yourself 
for example, going, you know what, I just, I, I'm like a habitual or a compulsive liar. I can't help but tell the truth. I just, even when I don't, even when it doesn't benefit me or I don't have to, I just find myself like making up these stories and I don't like that in me. That's not, that's not hypocritical of you wishing you were one way, wishing you did one thing and not doing that. That's just good old-fashioned sin, right? And Jesus is going to deal with that. But we got to make sure that's not what hypocrisy, what spiritual hypocrisy is all about. If you're a parent, this is really important because uh, you might feel like a hypocrite sometimes because you really don't want to be an angry parent. You don't want to parent your kids that way. You don't want to pass that along to them. You don't want to blow up at them. You don't want to lose your temper around them. But when they run through the house with muddy shoes on or they talk back or don't listen or like whatever the case is and you blow up at them again, you don't want to be that way. You don't want to lose your temper in an unholy anger kind of way. Except for that isn't hypocrisy. That's just just good old-fashioned sin. The reason that this is important is because hypocrisy isn't wishing you were doing one thing and doing something else. Hypocrisy is actually showing one way and living another. Hypocrisy is about saying one thing, Lord, Lord, and doing something entirely different. That's important because Jesus has very little tolerance in the scripture for for hypocrisy, for spiritual hypocrites. But he has endless grace for sinners. So if you find yourself over here going like, oh, I can't believe that, you know, I just fly off the rails or I lie all the time or like do whatever the case. And you're like beating yourself up about this. Listen, this isn't you being a hypocrite. This is you and I being sinners. And Jesus is going to deal with that. This is what he does. He has endless grace for sinners and forgiveness for those who seek it. But hypocrites are the ones who pretend that there's someone that they're not, who show one thing and live another, who say one way and do entirely different. It's actually interesting, the etymology of the word hypocrite, it comes from a mashup of two Greek words, uh, hypocrite, which is to uh, like an under judgment or to, or to misjudge someone. And in Jesus' day, it's also worth noting that it was even more specific than that because they went to plays and they had stages and they saw these stories acted out, not unlike today. And there was a specific role that somebody had as being the hypocrite. So in Jesus' day, the, the hypocrite, the hypocrite, would actually wear a mask to pretend to be somebody else in the drama or in the play. And I brought this one with me because it's super creepy. And that's like a message about hypocrite. No, no. Uh, so my, my quick story, my wife brings this back. She traveled to Korea and she's like, hey, I got this like hand-carved like traditional Korean mask and I, and I thought that you would like it. And it looks great in the daylight, right? <laughs> There's nowhere I could hang this up at home where it just doesn't terrify me in the dark. So bring it out of the shelf for today and then it's, it's going to go right back in there because it's creepy and maybe that is not a bad point uh, kind of within that. Uh, but the hypocrite in the play in Jesus' times with the hypocrite, the, the, to misjudge somebody, would, would show up and they would put on a mask and they would pretend to be someone that they're not in the play. And that was the whole point. Everybody knew what they were doing. It was a role that they were playing. So you wouldn't see the actual person behind the mask. You would see the, the presentation, the face that the person wanted to cast to everybody. The problem is we do this in the church. 
is that we put up a mask and we pretend to be someone that we're not. And that's what today is about. It's about dropping the mask. Uh, but first, I just want to kind of acknowledge, I guess, uh, the different ways sometimes that, that I've been convicted on this. Um, so I asked permission to share this story, and he said, go ahead. Um, and he didn't have much of a choice anyway. But my friend Aaron, who I'm going to affectionately refer to as the toughest guy I know from here on out. And if you think you are the toughest guy that I know, you haven't met Aaron yet. This is a guy who did three tours in Iraq as a Marine before joining the Coast Guard. He works in the private sector now doing security while he works, while he uh, fights mixed martial arts Muay Thai for fun. <laughs> Toughest guy I know. He comes up to me one time after worship and he's like, hey man, I really want to learn more about Jesus and about the Bible. Can you teach me how to sort of live into that more? And I'm like, that's literally what I do. Let's do it. <laughs> and so we sit down, and this is like toughest guy I know. And this is, uh, this is a couple years ago. This is kind of uh, this place in, in my life where I wasn't being very healthy at the time. And, uh, and I sit down across the table from him, and he's like, toughest guy I know. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, su- I'm supposed to be the one to teach him how the best way to live his life ought to be. Some of you have noticed some kind of transformation for me over the last couple of years. I've shed a few pounds, 50 or so, over the last two years-ish. That's mostly because I'm sitting across from the table every time. And I hear these words of a spiritual mentor of mine that says, anybody who desires to be in leadership, you really ought to live a life worth following. And I'm like, why is my life desirable or worth following to this guy across the table from me? And I just hear like this conviction of the Holy Spirit saying like, listen, man, you, you, gotta, you gotta stop pretending like you have the answers to teach him. Take off the mask and ask him to teach you. And a friendship developed out of that and a gym membership as well. And that was pretty awesome. <laughs> Jesus though, he continues on because he's not just gonna call us out. That's what I love about reading the scripture. What I love about following Jesus is he doesn't just name things and leave it there, but he actually gives us some of the keys to take that next step of how to take off the mask and the significance behind that. So we're going to continue on this key that Jesus gives for taking off the mask in verse 47. He says, as for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I'll show you what they're like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. You know, that's, that's important. It's important today. It was important back then to put the foundation on bedrock instead of on top of the clay, which in Jesus' day and today is super tempting because the book of Leviticus refers to the ground around Jerusalem, around that area in the Middle East, as like bronze and clay. Like, like it's that hard. It's that dense. Building season was in the dry summer, obviously not the wet winter. And so it's very tempting to build a home on top of that dirt instead of digging down to the rock below. After all, the ground felt like rock, so just go with it. Sometimes people would just go with it. Even today, around Jerusalem, there's a suburb just outside of Jerusalem where on August 20, 1991, an apartment, a four-story apartment building collapsed. The bathtub in the fourth floor ended up on the third floor. A third of the building was just rubble and, and gone. Reporters said it looked like a micro earthquake hit just that part of the building structure. 
A report came out later on that said what happened was it was actually a sewer main underneath that part of the building that ruptured and, and started causing uh, water and sewage to kind of run everywhere. And because it's all clay around in that area back then and still today, everything was fine to build that right up until it got wet. And then the clay started melting and the foundation, those walls may have been built on what seems to be jello. They start to buckle and the building comes a crumbling down around that. So that's why Jesus is saying, listen, like you get this. It's a lot harder work in the summertime to try to dig through that bronze clay to get to the bedrock, but do it. You'll thank me later. They did, especially when this next line happened. Jesus says, when, hold that for a second, when a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. This is a bit of a tangent, but I'm gonna say it anyway. If you are already a Jesus follower, if you have given your life over to his and says, no, no, Jesus, you run my life, not me. Just note that your Lord and Savior used the word when the torrent struck and not if. I just want you to see that Jesus could have picked any words here. And he said, listen, all of us, no matter how much of a blessed life it seems like you had to this point so far, when the torrent strikes, when the storm hits, when the foundation starts to shake, when it seems like your life is built atop jello, it will happen. And you will wonder in that moment what my foundation actually is. And he continues, but the one who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. I started off this message by talking about how this is the sermon on the plain. This is a different sermon that Jesus gave than the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. Because the Sermon on the Mount, the key factor that he wanted to leave his, leave his people with was the distinction between wise and foolish. If you grew up in church, you might remember the little song. I'm not going to sing it because remember, I'm a passionate but ungifted vocalist. But the wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the the key distinction there is between a wise way to live your life and a foolish way to live your life. That makes sense. Wisdom and foolishness doesn't register in this teaching from Jesus. This time he uses that same analogy, not to talk about wisdom and foolishness, but he wants to really drill down on the foundation language. He wants to call that out because there's something to that foundation language that's going to be helpful for all of us who are earnestly seeking to try to take off the mask. The significance of this goes way before Jesus, way before the time of Jesus, 705 years, in fact, before the time of Jesus. It goes way back to a prophet named Isaiah, who was, who was supposed to be like the spiritual advisor to the kings and the leadership of ancient Israel. Again, 705 years before Jesus ever came to earth, ever was born into it. And, and Isaiah is speaking now in the book of Isaiah to the leadership of Israel. And he's saying, listen, bad news is right on the horizon, which they were aware of. 
The Assyrians, the superpower to the north and to the east are marching south and to the west directly at us. And they're gobbling up little nation by little nation, little nation after little nation, and they're destroying all of them. And and the expressed intent is to come to Israel to do the same here. You know that already. And they're saying, we know that already. And Isaiah points out and he goes, now you have made a, a peace treaty with Egypt. It was actually a mutual defense treaty, which we still do today. It's NATO, so that if you attack one nation, you attack all nations that come to the defense. Israel had done that with the other superpower nation of Egypt south below them. Egypt was huge. It was Egypt and Assyria and a bunch of little nations in between. Israel makes this mutual defense treaty with Israel or with Egypt and says, listen, if something should happen to us, like Assyria, you're going to show up, right? You're going to protect us, right? In Egypt, at least somebody in Egypt, just sure, yeah, yeah, sign up and let's start trading. And yeah, I'll I'll be there, I'll show up. And Isaiah is the lone voice that's saying, Egypt ain't going to show up. They're not going to be here. They're going to hang you out to dry. In fact, Isaiah goes even further than that. And he's talking about how Egypt has a culture entirely built around death. You think they're going to save your life? You know those pyramids in Egypt, and they're very pretty. They weren't built as a tourist attraction. They were built as a gravestone. They were built because their pharaohs and their leadership would be buried underneath, and they wanted to worship and honor the dead for all of time. You think that they're going to show up and they're going to save you? They don't even care about you. Isaiah goes, listen, you've got to understand, Assyria is knocking on our door. They're almost here, and they will destroy us. This is what Isaiah says. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 15, he says, you boast, he's talking to leadership, you guys brag up that we have entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, with Egypt, we have made an agreement. It's bad news. They're not coming. And then he continues on in verse 16. He says, but there's good news after that. This is what the sovereign Lord said. See, See, I lay a stone in Zion. That's a euphemism, a stand-in for Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom. I lay a stone in Jerusalem, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Wouldn't that be nice? I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie. And water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death or Egypt will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. Assyria is coming. Egypt will not show up. It's game over. But God isn't finished yet. There's a stone. There's a foundation. That was 700 five years before the time of Jesus. And during those centuries, the people looked at passages like this and more, and they thought they had it figured out. See, maybe it's coincidence, maybe it's providential that we've been talking. I've just kind of been throwing out there over the last few weeks that Jerusalem was a holy city because it's the highest city. Elevation meant that you were closer to God. And Jerusalem being 3,000 feet above three levels, sea level, give or take, meant that it was the holiest place around. And the temple was built on top of the highest mountain in the highest city, and it was viewed as the holiest place in the holiest city. 
And then in the center of the temple, the holy, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, the very manifestation of the presence of God was set, there was actually a stone, a rock that raised up about three inches above the highest mountain in the highest city in that holy land. And they called that rock the Shekinah, the foundation, the cornerstone, the rock. And everybody viewing that area knew innately the significance of that place. And the narrative and the story drawn around it said God is going to rebuild his entire nation. He's going to redo his entire people built around this exact place. Christians, Muslims, Jews, they all were acutely aware of the significance and the promises of this place. And so today, if you go to visit that site, those groups gathered around, they built a temple right on top of it. And they called it the dome. Does anybody know it? The dome of the rock. Because the rock is in the middle, the cornerstone and the foundation, raising up about three inches from the rest of the ground around it. God will come back. And this place, this man-made temple, this man-made rules, these man-made regulations are going to be justice and are going to be righteousness. And they will end panic and fear and anxiety. And Jesus picks this up in Luke chapter 6. And he goes, you want a foundation? You want a Shekinah? You want a cornerstone? Don't look to the center of a man-made temple and your walls that you built up around it for righteousness and justice. Don't look at this. Jesus says, if you want to build your life around the lasting foundation that when the, when the storm comes and the torrent strikes, when life starts to fall apart and anxiety sets in, if you want to build your foundation, if you want to build your life on a foundation, build it on me. Jesus is saying this whole story is a conversation about the foundation. This whole story is a conversation about how it's not that that is your solid rock. I am your solid rock. I am your Shekinah. I am your foundation. I am everything. I am at the center of it all. Not with grace. Not you or me. Which is incredibly I'm going to go with liberating. It's, it's so freeing because, because we put so much pressure like on ourselves. Isn't that why we wear the masks in the first place? Because we want to cast this vision of a perfect life and an Instagram-ready home to the whole world and say, I've got the perfect marriage, the perfect kids, the perfect job, the perfect everything. And I don't want anybody else to know that just behind the mask is an entirely different entity. So I'm going to spend all my time and all my energy keeping up the facade of that mask. Only people know. The, the rest of the world knows that it can't be this perfect. Nobody is. And coming back to those words of Brennan Manning, the greatest cause of atheism in this world is people who pretend. And that's just simply what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable. Or I love the quote that's often attributed to Gandhi. I don't know if he actually said this or not, but let's go with it because it's kind of helpful. Um, he says, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And if we made ourselves 
the center, the centerpiece of our faith. And if we made ourselves the ones who need to chase perfection, then yeah, the whole thing is going to crumble apart and it'll be worthless. There's an apologist, uh, Josh McDowell, who wrote about this and he said, um, he said that Christianity does not rise, does not stand or fall based on Christians. Christianity rises and falls based on Christ. If Christians are hypocrites or if Christians say one thing and live an entirely different way, it doesn't negate the claims of Christianity because this whole thing, at least it shouldn't, be built on us. It should be built on him. And Jesus, at the end of his life, gathered his disciples around, his people who've lived with him for three years, who, who ate and drank and slept right next to him for three years, night and day. And he said, in what way, asking them, in what way have I lived contrary to the ways that I taught you? And it was crickets. Silence. Because there was no hypocrisy in him. And his life, death, and resurrection is the foundation of our faith, not ours. And once we do that, I think that's the only way that we're ever going to take off the mask. Because then when we take that off, there may be some ugliness behind, but it doesn't matter because we're not chasing perfection. It doesn't matter because our perfection is in him. That's why it's so incredibly liberating. Does anybody know who Beth Moore, the Bible teacher, is? A couple of you, maybe? Yeah, right on. Okay, a few people. Ask your parents. Uh, they might know. Uh, she's great. Love the content. And she has this, uh, she, she said, has a saying one time. She said, um, we Moors, uh, we don't want to spend our energy, or it's exhausting trying to convince the world that we live fabulous lives. I love this. She goes on to say, we'd much rather Use that energy to point towards Jesus and say, his grace isn't wasted on me. See, that's, that's the courage to take off the mask. The courage that we get to take off the mask is simply pointing to Jesus and saying, his grace isn't wasted on me. I don't need to chase perfection. I already own his. And we don't have to use and to be exhausted trying to chase that anymore. And so this morning, I want to just simply ask, who is ready to take off the mask? Who's ready to stop pretending because God can't forgive the person that you're pretending to be? In church, the other thing is, I don't think that should be a rhetorical question. I think that Jesus is asking, who's ready to stop pretending? So let's do something together here. I invite everybody where you are to just stand up. Stand up and look right ahead. That's fine. What I'm going to do in just a few minutes is I'm just going to ask if you're ready to take off the mask and to stop pretending and receive the forgiveness that Jesus has to offer. I'm going to count to three. and I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. That's all. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to ask. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to write out a story or send a prayer team to your seat. I'm just going to ask the question: Who's ready to take off your mask on the count of three and just raise your hand? Because, like I said before, Jesus isn't going to forgive the person that you're pretending to be. That person doesn't exist. Jesus cannot stand spiritual hypocrisy, but He has endless grace for sinners like us. 
who simply need to be forgiven. So let's pray together to God right now. And let's just ask God, Lord, would you give us courage this morning to drop our masks and to stop pretending? God, would you give us the courage this week and even today to have difficult conversations? God, maybe that looks like a difficult conversation with our small group this afternoon or this week. Maybe it looks like a difficult conversation taking off the mask. Maybe to somebody we've been married to for 30 years. God, give us the courage to have these difficult conversations and do life together, maybe with our roommates or maybe with our own kids. God, we ask that you give us this courage to stop pretending to receive forgiveness. Because God, I believe that there's somebody in the room right now. There's somebody in the room who kisses his wife goodbye every morning and says that he loves her, but goes to work and flirts with somebody at the office. God, there's somebody in the room today who's pretending like they're a perfect church-going Christian person, but on the job site, it's like they lead an entirely different life. God, there's somebody, there's a couple in the room today who everybody thinks is having a perfect and good marriage, but inside they know they need help. God, there's somebody in the room today who uses the Bible app to do their devotions, but later on in the week they they look at it and and, and they look at things on that very same device they know you would never have us look at. God, there's somebody in the room today who preaches a gospel of, of minimalism, of sufficiency in Jesus, of going without, but they're up to their eyeballs and consumer debt. God, we want to take off the mask. We want to receive your forgiveness and with it, new life. And so church, with your eyes closed, with your heads bowed, I'm just gonna ask this morning, if you're ready to take off your mask, on the count of three, just put your hand in the air. Three, two, one. Put your hand in the air, church. Amen, we're ready. Praise God for setting us free. Praise God for being the foundation. Praise God for being our living hope.